This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson. Thank you for joining us for part two of the Air Force Fire Protection History Series. If you've not done so yet, make sure to listen to part one of the series, which covers inception of the Army Air Corps Fire Service through the 1950s. As you know, if you listen to part one, this series is led by Senior Master Sergeant Damian Moore. Sergeant Moore devoted a lot of his time researching and studying both civil engineer and Air Force fire protection history. The material covered today and in all other history episodes come from a variety of sources mentioned in part one, most of which can be found on our website, firedog.us. So make sure to check out the site, save it to your favorite so you can stay plugged into every episode. And as always, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. Part two of the history series will cover the 1960s through the 1970s. Please welcome Senior Master Sergeant Damian Moore. All right, well, welcome back, sir. It's great to have you back, and I'm excited to get into part two. It's my understanding that we're going to cover the 60s and 70s today. That's correct. Uh, Thanks for uh, having me back. Looking forward to uh, hitting up these two decades to continue on with our history. Yeah, I'm excited, too. Go ahead and get into it. All right. So uh, if you remember or if you recall from the last session, uh, I typically like to start when I present this course with a did you know. Uh, So I'll start this one the same way uh, and ask the question. Right. Uh, So uh, most people probably don't even think about this, but Sparky actually has a birthday. Right. Uh, And so uh, the question I typically present to the class is Sparky's birthday uh, is March 18th. Right. And uh, and I say, uh, you know, how old is he? And so I have a couple of options here. Alpha is 70. Bravo is 51. Charlie, 21 and Delta, 45. And uh, I typically get a wide range, right, of selections on this. Uh, Some people get it right. But the correct answer uh, is that uh, Sparky actually turned 70 years old this year. And do you know any of the history on how Sparky started or why he started? (laughs) Yeah, sure. So uh, uh, Sparky was born, if you will, in, uh, on March 18th, 1951. And uh, the primary purpose behind that was really fire prevention, fire safety, right? To be able to reach out to the kids. Um, you'll see here in the slides, I kind of have a picture of one of what it looked like uh, back then. Uh, pretty cool uh, old school type of uh, photo here. Um, of him kind of bending over, talking to some kids and old school fire truck there. And, um, you know, he's wearing the the big bunker boots. Uh, so really, uh, you know, he was developed, uh, you know, back during that time, you know, by the uh, uh, the National Fire Protection uh, Association to to reach out to the kids and kind of get that that uh, fire prevention, fire safety campaign going. Cool. And I wonder if there was any collaboration with Smokey the Bear if they unveiled those two at the same time? Yeah, so uh, actually Smokey, so uh, another thing, and I obviously, I didn't put it in the in the presentation, but, uh, and it's, I'd have to go back to, to validate uh, his age, but I believe Smokey, so his name first I'll say is, is actually Smokey Bear. Uh, over the years, we just naturally called him Smokey the Bear, but uh uh, officially, his name is Smokey Bear. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of funny. Like I said, when you dig into the history books and you just kind of look and you find things, those are just little misconceptions. And it's obviously that's not a bad thing. Right. Smokey the Bear. Uh, I think we all relate to him that way. Um, right. 
but obviously, you know, as we know with Smokey uh, Bear, uh, his uh, the fire uh, uh, wildland fires was the big focus there. And I did have his his birthday, um, but uh, that uh, escapes me right now. No worries. Yeah. So I'm wondering, in the '60s and '70s, is this when fire prevention efforts kind of took the front seat a little bit more? Yeah. Is that why they developed? Yeah, Sparky. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, definitely started to, you know, we wanted to get better at uh, preventing fires, right, Um, on the civilian side. And then obviously even the military, you know, and that's kind of where we pick up. And and that's really why I opened this session with with Sparky, kind of a nod to our fire prevention sections. Uh, If anybody out there that's ever worked fire prevention, you know that it's a grind. If you've never worked it, you think prevention is easy. You think uh, that those guys kind of have a cake job, uh, especially compared, you know, when you look at ops. But I've had the opportunity to work uh, fire prevention. And I tell you what, that was some of the uh, most challenging and developing times in my career. Definitely gave me a a different perspective. Yeah, I've never had the privilege to work, but they are certainly the uh, tip of the spear of the fire department. I mean, that's where you know, we could prevent things, bad things from happening and really protect the community and have the most impact, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, in the 1960s, uh, there was a big uh, push um, on the Air Force side, right, uh, to to kind of reduce fires. Uh, so Major General Augustus uh, Minton at the time acknowledged the importance of fire prevention uh, when he, he kind of wrote this. And he said, uh, it is the Air Force civil engineer's prime duty to educate the other members of the Air Force as to the chemistry of fire and to instill in them the idea that fire prevention is akin, akin to cleanliness and godliness in the survival of mankind. And That's pretty he, powerful. Quote. Yeah, absolutely. And then he closed with, he said, you know, let it be said that fire prevention is the human thing to do. Uh, right. And so um, and the reason why, you know, from some of the research and and things that I that I was able to to pull from the from the history books um, in fiscal year uh, 63, it says that uh, fire and emergency services uh, crews responded to to 2014 calls. Uh, 331 of those calls were aircraft fires. Can you imagine that? Yeah, that's quite a bit. Yeah, we probably have less than 10 now. Right? Exactly. I mean, I don't know what that exact number is, but it's nowhere near 331. Right. And, right, right. and it says that they recorded uh, uh, 59 saves. But um, and that sounds obviously that's great. That's a huge number. But there were a, there was a 152 lives that were lost uh, during that year. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. So that's a significant number. Right. And then on top of that, uh, one hundred and sixty two million dollars in assets uh, were lost uh, as well. Yeah. Well, it, it makes sense that a major general is getting involved in this fire prevention effort in the 60s based <laughs> yeah, on those numbers. Absolutely. And so uh, so that, that was kind of the the uh, the push. Right. Uh, you know, major losses. Uh, and and life and and property, right? That was kind of that big push. And so, uh, one of the things that we did do, though, as a fire service to to get after this call in 1967, uh, they de- they uh, developed the very first fire prevention inspector course uh, at the schoolhouse, and uh, that course was credited with 
um, saving a, a ton of money over like the next 10 years or something like that. We saw a, uh, a drastic reduction and fire loss after this course was developed. So uh, pretty cool nod there. Uh, in fact, it says here the, the losses were reduced by 80% over uh, the following 10-year period that that course was developed. So kudos to, to our team and to, to our folks that, that stood that, that course up. Yeah, certainly. So uh, we continued on with development, of course. Uh, as I mentioned before, we were a continuous process improvement type agency from the very beginning, right? We we're always looking to, to stay with the times and, and continue to develop ourselves. And so with the arrival of new aircraft like the C-5, uh, that demanded new weapons, that demanded new equipment, better trucks. Um, and so uh, uh, entered you know, on the scene is the... Uh, P4 and the, or actually the P2 and then also the P4 uh, kind of rolled on the scene in the 1960s. Uh, huge trucks with with uh, massive capabilities uh, to get after some of the uh, the fires that were happening during that time. And so uh, the P2 uh, was an aircraft uh, fire rescue vehicle. It was an eight by eight all wheel drive truck uh, that carried 2,500 gallons of water and foam. So, again, we continue to develop, continue to grow um, and invest in our programs. Uh, also, during this time, uh, they rolled out AFFF, right? And we all know the environment that we're in right now with AFFF. It's, mm -hmm. it's crazy, but uh, uh, it was rolled out in the 60s because uh, it was considered to be more effective uh, than at the time the protein foam. Um, and, you know, as we kind of talked about in the last session, you know, you kind of compare things to now versus to back then as they dealt, dealt with changes. Uh, protein foam was the standard for about 20 years um, before the AFFF rolled out and took its place. So I imagine there were some, you know, challenges there, some early adopters and, and some, some uh, you know, uh, some folks that resisted change, uh, but nonetheless, it, it was for the better at the time. And now we're transitioning again, and, and ideally we'll find what that next uh, best solution is uh, to continue to provide that protection. Yeah, again, like we mentioned in part one, we're kind of living through history right now Yeah. in terms of foam and, and what's next for us, or if it even is foam. That's a good point, yeah. And, and who knows what the accelerant or whatever the fuel may be for aircraft in the future based on based on all of this stuff. You know, it could be different. It could be a different kind of energy source. Yeah, that's, I'm getting, uh, getting ahead a little bit, but no, no, that's all right. And that's a great point. You know, that's you know, because obviously that drives what we what we need right to to fight fire. Um, that's a big part of it. Yes, sir. As you're speaking about the larger trucks being introduced into the fire service i wonder what the challenge was getting these trucks into fire stations designed for much smaller trucks mm, yeah that's that's another great point um or even just things like uh you know uh maintenance right um we'll kind of and that kind of leads us into our next point as we talked about in part one i think you asked the question as to why, uh, you know, the fire school relocated so many times. Well, one of those relocations, as we look at the next point here on the slide, was 
uh, that fire, the fire school kind of relocated from Greenville, Mississippi, uh, uh, to actually Chanute Air Force Base, which I know there are a lot of Chanute uh, fire babies, I guess I'll call them out there. Alum. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's probably a better word. <laughs> Chanute alum, for sure. I mean, there's there's an immense pride. Uh, I can remember coming up uh, as a young firefighter and, you know, the old school, the old timers in the department would talk about you know, those days at Chanute and how that was, you know, that was the real firefighting days and uh, and things like that. So, yeah, much colder uh, than it is in San Angelo. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, but, you know, the school and as I mentioned in part one, you know, the school was at uh, Lowry Air Force Base uh, there in Colorado. But in the 60, 1960, it moved to uh, Greenville, Mississippi. Um, and immediately, uh, it was faced with, uh, the school kind of was faced with challenges, right? Uh, classes were kind of conducted on an aircraft hangar. Uh, they kind of found space where they could to conduct exercises. And one of the biggest challenges was, you know, back to my point or, uh, or to your point earlier was, uh, vehicles. Um, they could not keep the vehicles in service. Um, uh, uh, Greenville, Mississippi, the base there uh, at the time contracted out their um, vehicle repair services and the civilians didn't know how to deal with these military specific trucks. And I think, you know, early on as a younger guy, we, we kind of faced some of these challenges as well. And I think that was a driving factor to why we now just buy commercial off the shelf, if I'm not mistaken, um, with yeah. our vehicles versus just getting something specifically built um, you know, for the Air Force. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And even at the driver operator level. So I know that, and I've heard of stories of guys going to P23 school and these different schools for the vehicle. Yeah. And when we, when we purchase commercial trucks, instead of kind of creating a school to teach people how to use these trucks, you can bring the representatives from the company to come. To right. do it. And so it, it makes the most sense really to buy commercial from a maintenance and learning perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the challenges that, you know, you and I kind of remember coming up, you know, with vehicles, uh, you know, those were a thing even back then. Right. And so, um, but when that, when the fire school relocated to Chanute, uh, it really took off. I really started to gain some traction. There were a lot of good things going on there, um, under the helm or, or leadership of, uh, uh, Chief Garland, right? This is really where he kind of established himself and kind of rose uh, to the top, if you will, um, and kind of established himself as a as a pioneer in our fire service uh, was really through uh, leading a fire school down there at Chanute Air Force Base. And uh, kind of spoiler alert, but he's going to be our pioneer highlight for, for this session. So I'll talk a little bit more about him um, at the close here. And so he, he was th the individual that started the school or was there when it started? Correct. Yeah. So when the school relocated there, he was also uh, he came in to to lead the school and uh, and led it for a good 10 years from about uh, 1965 uh, all the way to 75 uh, when he retired. Uh, so the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll talk about before we close out uh, the 1960s, it's it's somewhat related to uh, obviously this is more of a, a military um, 
bit of history, but I kind of found it interesting. And, you know, it was in the uh, in one of the source documents. So I kind of thought I'd highlight it, but it was uh, 1966. Project 100,000 was established or, or started. Um, it was then uh, uh, Secretary of Defense uh, McNamara that started this project. Um, and the idea behind it was was twofold. One, it was to boost the numbers for for the war effort um, there in Vietnam. And uh, and also it was designed to be a social welfare program for those that weren't smart enough or maybe uh, didn't have the right nutrition even actually to, to be acceptable to, to join the, the military service. Um, so a very interesting program project that was started. And the goal was to recruit 100,000 uh, of the of people that met the criteria um, per year. And, and essentially, that's where the name came from. Wow, that's an interesting piece of history. And it, it may have not worked out so well, considering they ended up going to a draft, right? Correct. Yeah. So, um, but these were, you know, folks that technically didn't even re- meet the requirements for a draft, right? Um, you know, they were malnutritioned or, you know, from an educational standpoint, they, you know, essentially, you know, quite frankly, weren't smart enough, if you will. Um, and so how was fire protection impacted by this and why is it relative? Uh, well, uh, we had individuals enter the fire service, you know, military fire service uh, under this program. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, pushback, if you will, from leadership. And uh, it got to the point that uh, Air Force leadership finally started to listen and realize that uh, these folks were actually causing more harm than than good. And so they developed a program to to easily uh, return these individuals to uh, civil service or back to the civilian uh, life. Uh, so uh, pretty interesting project. Uh, it goes a lot deeper. Uh, there's a lot of history tied into that. But, uh, yeah, you know, we weren't exempt from things that were happening, you know, or or we weren't exempt, I should say, from things that were impacted our, our local society at the time. You know, um, those things bled over into the military as well. Yeah, it was a tough time to serve in the military in the 60s or during Vietnam specifically. You, uh, you hear a lot of stories of the issues that they had during that time period and specifically in campaign in Vietnam and soldiers kind of refusing to listen to their superiors and a whole lot of insubordination and, Correct. Um, you know, drug use and yeah. everything else, you know, yeah. it was just a wild time back then. Yeah. And, you know, and it was some of these folks, you know, or the folks that were brought into under this program that contributed to a lot of those things and, you know, not no fault of their own. Uh, you know, when we look back now uh, from history, a lot of experts and social workers and, you know, folks look back and say this this should have never happened kind of thing. Right. And, um, you know, in the program, their project was was a fail. Uh, you know, it it didn't achieve what, you know, we had hoped it would. So. Um, so, yeah, cool bit of history. Yeah, Secretary McNamara came out some years following the war and admitted that a lot of what they did during that time period wasn't the best. And really in terms of strategy in the Vietnam War. And he wrote a book 
called In Retrospect, where he okay. he talked a lot about that and the lessons learned and the tragedies of Vietnam and a lot of what they did wrong. It's definitely an interesting piece of American history. Absolutely. Uh, so that kind of closes out the 1960s, right? And um, so I'll roll into the 1970s. Uh, we continued uh, in the 70s to develop, right, and train. And, you know, uh, this decade was no different, uh, but we saw some significant things happen uh, that I thought was pretty cool um, that I'd like to highlight, right? And so, um, you know, one of the things was uh, uh, obviously our badges, right? So in 1970, uh, our fire badge was developed um, actually by, again, Chief Garland. He was uh, uh, credited with, with heading up the effort to do that. We, prior to the 70s, we didn't have anything that uh, helped us stand out or that uh, you know, showed that we were fire service um, or firefighters, maybe other than a patch or so. But uh, this was the first time that we essentially – got something to help distinguish and uh, help us uh, and recognize, you know, our training and, and the efforts that uh, we put in. Uh, so I'll say, you know, with the badge, I know there's a lot of uh, back and forth lately, especially with the, with the arrival of the new OCPs um, where folks, you know, uh, would prefer the tab over the badge. I personally, I like both. I like the tab. And I also like the badge, uh, but if you had, uh, if you asked me uh, to choose, and it's it's always going to be the badge for me. Um, a lot of history and heritage tied into that, um, and something I kind of picked up from one of my uh, big brothers, I guess I, I, I like to call him, and mentor in the fire service was uh, Chief Shanton Russell there at McConnell. Uh, he kind of, I had an opportunity to go out to Kunsan actually and visit him once for an inspection. And uh, they had this uh, this initiation or a hell program where they would bring in their new firefighters and they would kind of walk them through uh, the mission there at, at Kunsan. And uh, they kind of tied it to the eight, you know, the, the eighth symbol engineer squadron. It was eight steps at each step. They were kind of read some things off to you, kind of, you know, breed that history and heritage. And one of those things uh, that they highlighted was the badge. And he kind of talked about how the badge was a symbol of, of trust, uh, a symbol of, uh, you know, a relationship between us and the community, right? Um, with that badge, and I tell, and I've kind of taken that and present this, presents uh, these things to our firefighters here at Masawa, that, uh, you know, that badge gives us access to people's lives, gives us access to places that uh, an A1C would never be able to go. Uh, we're in people's homes. We we intervene on people's worst days. Um, and so uh, it's that badge that gives us the authority to do that. And so we kind of say, hey, don't tarnish the badge. Right. We don't want our folks uh, to do things um uh, that would bring discredit upon the badge and who we are as firefighters. Yeah, well, that was that was beautiful. <laughs> when you when you explain the badge like that, it uh, it, it definitely drives home the meaning a bit more. And uh, I think I'd like the fire taps as well, but uh, I'm with you. I'd pick the badge if given a choice. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like I said, you know, I, I know to each his own, but uh, and I'm not trying to uh, sway anybody either way. But I'm just kind of sharing 
you know, what the badge means to me um, and hopefully, you know, provide maybe a different perspective uh, and take on it. Yeah. Uh, so some other things that happened in the, in the 1970s uh, was uh, we, we adopted uh, the IFSTA manuals. All right. So in 1972, I think we talked about some of the challenges uh, that we had uh, in the early days of, you know, training to different levels and everybody kind of having a different standard. Uh, but it was in 1972 that the Air Force as a whole or as an enterprise decided to adopt uh, the ISTA manuals from OSU um, as the standard for training. So a pretty big, big leap there. And again, Chief Carlin had a big uh, role in uh, rolling this out and, and making this happen. This is kind of a transition in the Air Force where we said we are going to be similar to our civilian counterparts. We're going to kind of adopt it the same way of doing business. That's what it seems like to me. Yeah, I agree. Um, and in some cases, actually, uh, we contributed. Uh, Chief Garland and his team actually was credited with uh, contributing to, you know, the FAA standards, you know, because when you think about it, you know, who was really the lead in agency uh, in aircraft crashes and, and aircraft fire protection? You know, I don't I don't think there weren't a lot of civilian aircraft, you know, just dropping out of the air, you know, during right. those days. So um, a lot of what we did uh, actually shaped uh, those rules, those regulations and, and standards today. Yeah, we kind of wrote the book on aircraft rescue firefighting. Yes, sir. Um, and so also in uh, the 70s, the P-15 rolled out um, and you can see the, the picture, Matt, I know. But I mean, this truck is massive, um, you know, huge truck, uh, you know, weighed 130,000 pounds, um, you know, just another asset to uh, get after uh, the challenges of the day uh, there. Uh, but uh, and I know a lot of. Uh, folks that are still in the fire service today actually drove this truck. Yeah, I know a lot of our firefighters are likely familiar with it and has seen it. If you've if you've walked the troop walk in San yep. Angelo, Goodfellow Air Force Base, it's right there on the left hand side. The biggest truck there, yes, B fifteen. Absolutely. And I'm wondering what the drive was for this particular vehicle. Was it the uh, so the C5 came into action in the 60s? And I'm wondering if this was a truck to, I don't know, provide protection for that particular aircraft. Because I mean, this thing is massive, you know. Yeah, correct. I mean, I imagine that, and uh, yeah, I don't know for sure exactly why, but it, and I, it could I, be I, a manpower thing as well, you know, to to drive down the requirements on manpower. I mean, we move this truck out of the station and we are literally kind of covering our water requirement for the airfield. And it only takes one or two people to operate. And I, I'm imagining it probably takes at least three because there's two turrets on the top and there's probably an operator that needs to be driving it. So, but right. uh, you, you could almost cut your manpower requirements in half with this vehicle. And that may have been a driving force. Yeah, I agree. And and I also, again, like, you know, I'd say I'd contribute some of it to just that continuous process improvement. Right. Uh, finding better ways to to uh, to extinguish fires. And like you said, maybe the manpower issue for sure. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a good, fair, fair assessment until someone uh, lets us know otherwise. <laughs> yeah, these things are these things are massive. I wonder uh, 
I wonder why they went away, and I wonder what the maintenance was like for these things. Yeah, so I'd, I'd have to say looking at it, I mean, I imagine maintenance was was a, was a bear for these. Um, and again, I think as we continue to, to grow and phase out some of these vehicles, you know, um, to get more efficient, uh, maybe even to, you know, from a, a mobility standpoint too, right? When we talk about uh, deployment operations and, uh, and things like that, uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure that played a factor. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, so, uh, looking at, you know, some other things that happened in the seventies, uh, the late seventies, actually 1978. So the fire, uh, the army actually continued to do their firefighting operations and train. They actually had a fire school there at Fort Rucker in Alabama. Um, but in 1978, they finally decided to close their school. Um, and joined Chanute. So uh, in 1978, our tech school became joint. Um, and now, obviously, it's it's a DOD uh, academy. Um, and then we even have, you know, I can remember going through the school, we had international students in there um, as well. But uh, the very first time it became joint was in 1978 uh, when the Army closed their school and sent their students over to, uh, to Chanute for training. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that the Army had its separate school at any point. Yes, they did. Um, you know, they continued their fire operations as well. They continued to build vehicles. They um, continued their fire protection program, if you will. Um, and it wasn't again until 1978 and even in 19 uh, early 90s uh, as well. Some other things happened. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, you know, that caused... Uh, you know, all the fire services to uh, uh, to come under the umbrella of the Air Force and how we manage the, the DOD program for certifications and things like that, too. So. So, yeah, absolutely. Very cool. All right. So uh, also the school just continued to thrive in the 70s, uh, again, under the tutelage and leadership of Chief Garland there. Uh, it says here that the school's reputation was world world renowned. Congressmen, governors, general officers, foreign dignitaries all visited the school for briefings and tours. Uh, its instructional staff was unparalleled for its knowledge and professionalism. They interfaced with the National Fire Protection Agency, the underwriters, laboratories, a factory, mutual and other military services on a daily basis. Uh, the school also became the first agency to coordinate with the Illinois Commission on Fire Protection Standards. Yeah, so this is a big transition for us. And we adopted IFSTA. We got with NFPA and the Underwriters Laboratory, and we're really kind of interweaving ourselves into the fabric of the United States Fire Service. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like I, as I mentioned earlier, um, a lot of what we were doing back then uh, impacted standards that we still follow to this day. So really proud of our history and our heritage um, there. And, and again, something I didn't know until I got into to the books and, you know, kind of dug this stuff up and, and found it. So, you know, very proud of yeah. uh, what we've done. When did Major General Norma Brown come to the picture? You know, I know, <laughs> I know a lot of our listeners are familiar with that name and that she, uh, She's named after, or I'm sorry, our trainer in our Officer 2 and Officer 3 courses are named after her. When did she come into the picture? 
Yeah, so uh, during uh, she was uh, the uh, commander there at uh, at Chanute, um, and uh, you know she just essentially loved you know firefighters, and I'll, I'll kind of highlight her a little bit later on um, as we get into I think part three of this session. Uh, uh, but uh, I'll talk a little bit about her now. But uh, yeah, she just her efforts and everything that she's done uh, for the fire service. Uh, it even says here that uh, she considered the the school faculty um, as the unofficial Chinook ambassador. So when we talk about the school's reputation being world renowned, you know, a lot of the the people and dignitaries that would come, uh, you know, she would coordinate them coming to see the schoolhouse, and then she also championed. Um, you know, us getting the things that we needed, right? And uh, uh, equipment and and training and all of those things. And so uh, she's she played a huge role um, in the advocacy of, of fire fire protection services um, yeah, early on. Yeah, and obviously we know the the simulator there down at Goodfellow was was named after her, um, and that was actually developed in the 1980s. Uh, for about $180,000 at the time. Isn't that um, crazy? Yeah, yeah. We still use it. You know, that was Correct. a hell of an investment. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't even imagine. I think the, I can't remember the name of the new trainer down there. I think it's more. ADMS. Okay, ADMS. But oh, you remember, you're talking about Mooresville. Yes, Mooresville. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I want to say that one costs, you know, significantly more to develop uh, than, than Norma Brown. And yeah, for, for ADMS, I want to provide context on that. It's called the advanced disaster management system. And it's something that the Academy purchased at one point. It was, it's a virtual simulator. It was the, the big selling point from my understanding was that it was able to be packed up and shipped to different bases so that the Academy could do MTT courses. Yep. And uh, it ended up costing a whole lot of money to maintain with software updates and everything else. And so I think they went away with it or maybe they use it on a smaller scale. But uh, Norman Brown still exists. It didn't go away. So, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I'll uh, close out to today's session with uh, our pioneer highlight. And I've kind of been talking about them throughout this uh, part two here. Uh, but uh, I'd like to highlight uh, Chief Warrant Officer Lewis F. Garland. Uh, so he started his uh, service there, obviously, during the Army Air Force times in 1942 and kind of worked his way up through the different uh, positions in the fire department uh, and, uh, you know, excelled in all of those different areas. But where he really uh, rose to the top uh, or really shined uh, was during his leadership. Um, as the chief warrant officer there uh, of the Chinook Fire School. Uh, one of the, the uh, things that he was credited with was essentially developing the blueprint uh, for the career field training plan and obviously created the fire badge. And a uh, cool thing that he did uh, in 1967, uh, actually, he uh, uh, got a plane, uh, B-52, uh, and found an abandoned runway and uh, essentially loaded this B-52 with 10,000 gallons of fuel, surrounded it with 10,000 gallons of fuel and reached out to uh, some Air Force film uh, movie makers and the local news. They all came out and uh, he set it on fire and showed how our 
vehicles would respond and and uh, attack and extinguish the fire. And uh, you know, it was during this time that this this concept was was coined and phrased the mass application. Uh, and so. I uh, created a movie and I've said many times before, it would be pretty awesome to find this, this film. If anyone out there uh, knows where it might be or where we could find it, that'd be awesome to, to be able to see something like that. Yeah, it would be 10,000 gallons of fuel. I, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I, I'd love to see what that looked like and you know, what the, how the trucks responded and how they, you know, uh, you know, extinguish the fire. But, you know, on the, on the flip side, kind of jokingly, right. Maybe that, that, that footage is buried somewhere for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No kidding. I wonder how you come to, uh, to acquire 10,000 gallons. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, you know, he, he was a pioneer, you know, in our, in our fire protection training um, and just really set the standard for, you know, what we still enjoy to this day. Oh, for sure. So in 1975, uh, Chief Garland retired uh, from the Air Force and uh, uh, the Down school to, was uh, uh, San Antonio or San Angelo, excuse me, uh, Texas, where it uh, still resides to this day. And in 1995, uh, the school was renamed after him, after Chief Garland, um, to recognize and highlight the efforts um, that he put in uh, for the fire service. And so he'll never be forgotten. Uh, some pretty cool things I saw. Uh, his family when they uh, they actually invited his family down to uh, to see uh, the schoolhouse, and you know when they renamed it after him, and you know his family, his uh, sons, and I believe it was his grandsons uh, were able to come down and see, and uh, just uh, you know really understand what it was that their grandfather uh, did for. Uh, the Air Force uh, during his time of service. Yeah, he uh, certainly had a big impact on Air Force fire protection, and it goes beyond just his name simply being on the schoolhouse today. And, you know, that's how most of us recognize the name. But, uh, you know, he, he, he had a hand in developing the badge and different tactics that we employed as firefighters and instituting the IFSTA manuals and NFPA yep. and I mean, it's uh, a lot of what he started still exists today. And, you know, we can thank him for that. Absolutely. And then uh, obviously, and just like uh, chief uh, Frank Joseph that we talked about in the last session, in 2013, uh, he also was inducted into the hall of fame and, and received the lifetime achievement award from the military firefighter heritage foundation. So, True pioneer, um, you know, again, wanted to just someone that I felt should be highlighted as we look at his name on the schoolhouse and may not really know why the school was named that. Um, but now we do. Right. Yeah. Well, sir, I appreciate your time for part two and covering the 60s and 70s. Uh, again, a whole lot of great information, just like part one. And I look forward to part three. Sounds good, Max. Thanks again. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fire Dog Podcast. You can find more episodes just like this regularly posted to our website, firedog.us. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Fire Dog Podcast and on Instagram at the Fire Dog Podcast. That is the Fire DAWG Podcast. Please subscribe, like, and follow. Stay plugged into every new episode. 
Give us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed this episode. Lastly, don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and coworkers, either on social media or right there at the firehouse. Stay tuned for part three of the Air Force Fire Protection Series, where we'll cover the 1980s and 1990s. This is Matt Wilson and Senior Master Sergeant Damian Moore. Till next time, stay safe.